and welcome to the newest episode in Dialogue Topics. I'm Taylor Petrie, editor of Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. This season, we've been talking about the history of LDS scholarship on specific themes, exploring a topic in depth to consider how Dialogue has been a forum for these important issues since its founding. We'll also bring you up to date on these topics with our more recent issues to discuss some of the current trends. All of our topic pages are curated to bring you comprehensive collections of annotated scholarship and may be found at dialoguejournal.com slash topic pages, all one word, or navigate there from our homepage. You'll find amazing resources and research on tons of issues. And thanks for your sustaining support. month, we're looking at the history of scholarship on evolution. Now, this one is a little bit different from others that we've done so far. It's a topic that once dominated the pages of dialogue and was a major controversy for most of the 20th century. However, its moment has largely passed, at least in scholarly circles, the issue is settled. Still, it's useful to track the issue. That's because it remains controversial in certain demographics and acutely so in our community as a whole. According to the Pew Report, one of the most reputable surveys on religion in American life, more than half of all Latter-day Saints believe that humans always existed in their present form. Only 11% believe that humans evolved due to natural processes, and 32% say that we evolved in some other way. That puts us near the bottom of religious groups that accept natural evolution in America compared to Catholics, where only 27% say that humans have always existed in present form and 69% say that humans evolved. Those are flipped among white evangelicals with 60% denying human evolution and 36% accepting evolution in some form, closer to what Latter-day Saints believe. Only 12% of white evangelicals accept evolution according to natural processes. Evangelical Protestants, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses are the three religious groups least likely to accept evolution. Buddhist, Hindu, and Jewish groups in the United States are the most likely. So in order to tell the story of how we got here, it's useful to talk about where we came from and how we've evolved over the years. One, before Dialogue. In 1859, Charles Darwin finally published his book, The Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection. It's impossible to overstate the impact that this book has had. Evolution and geology both gradually transformed American Christianity as it confronted these new scientific advancements. Both of these disciplines challenged simplistic readings of the biblical timeline and creation story, suggesting that the world and the human species was much older than the Bible indicated. When this was coupled with new historical and literary approaches to the Bible that challenged traditional history, Christianity found itself backpedaling and attempting to adapt to these new discoveries. 
Latter-day Saints weren't totally cut off from these discussions. But the first major address of them comes on the 50th anniversary of Darwin's Origin of Species. In 1909, the First Presidency issued an authoritative document titled The Origin of Man. This argued for a historical Adam, created as the offspring of God, and denied that human beings evolved. There wasn't much of a middle ground sought here. This 1909 statement had some pretty important consequences because many Latter-day Saints had been receiving education at Eastern schools like Chicago, Columbia, and Harvard and were bringing this knowledge back to the Saints in Utah. In 1911, at the Brigham Young Academy, a controversy erupted when some of the professors were teaching evolution and critical approaches to the Bible. These were believers who were trying to reconcile these new discoveries with their faith, as modernist Protestants were doing. But many church leaders were uncomfortable with their solutions to the problems, preferring to believe the problems themselves were based on false premises. These conflicts between the modernists, who thought science and belief were compatible, and the fundamentalists, who thought that belief superseded secular knowledge, engulfed Christianity in the first half of the 20th century. For instance, the famous Scopes Monkey Trial in 1925 was a classic example of the conflicts over evolution in public schools that hinged on modernist and fundamentalist approaches to biblical history. These controversies included Mormons. Modernists like B.H. Roberts, James E. Talmadge, Henry Eyring, Sterling McMurrin, and others from this period confronted these issues, including evolution, attempting to find solutions. Fundamentalists like J. Reuben Clark, Joseph Fielding Smith, and others decried such efforts and drew on fundamentalist Christian ideas to respond to those who thought evolution was compatible with faith. The fundamentalists gained the upper hand for a variety of reasons, though they never fully controlled the church. For our history, the most powerful is Joseph Fielding Smith. In 1954, after B.H. Roberts and James E. Talmadge had passed away, Joseph Fielding Smith published Man, His Origin and Destiny, just five years before the 100th anniversary of Darwin's text on origins. Smith drew heavily on Seventh-day Adventist creationist George McCready Price. Man, His Origin and Destiny was a hugely popular book, attacking evolution and any moderate position that attempted to make it compatible with the Bible. He wrote elsewhere, If evolution is true, the church is false. Now, the church president at the time, David O. McKay, wasn't particularly happy with this and made clear that there was no official church position on evolution. But when a popular apostle and his son-in-law, Bruce R. McConkie, repeatedly taught that evolution was a satanic idea, it became hard to persuade the general membership to remain neutral on the matter. The fundamentalist approach framed evolution as an existential threat to the truthfulness of the church's teachings Intellectuals of the church were pushing back against this extremism and had support from other senior church leaders, but they were drowned out. One last issue that I want to point out is that the church membership actually got increasingly conservative on this issue. In 1935, 36% of BYU students denied the evolution of human beings. That's a pretty small minority relative to later periods. By 1973, 81% of BYU students denied evolution. 
So when dialogue is born in 1966, this was already an old conversation, more than a century old. There had been many members of the church, including very senior ones, who accepted evolution and sought to reconcile it with their religious views. But as we enter the 1960s, those who accepted evolution were increasingly pushed to the side. It was bound to be an issue that dialogue took up. Hi, this is Eric of Face and Hat, a member of the Dialogue Podcast Network. And I was trying to think of a reason why you might want to listen to Face and Hat and and frankly, um, call it false humility, call it a stupor of thought, but I was having a rough time. So I decided to ask a friend of the show, David O'McKay, if he would be so kind. Have you ever sat down and talked with men in a serious sort of way of their views of life and pondered then on all that they had to say? If not, you should, in some quiet hour. It's a glorious thing to do. Wow. Thanks, man. That's, that's really cool. Anyway, you should definitely listen to Face and Hat. I mean, David O. McKay thinks it's good. Dialogue Podcast Network. Act 2. Prophetic and Scientific Authority in Conflict Dialogue isn't a scientific journal, and one of the challenges of writing about evolution is the specialized scientific knowledge required. But this issue transcended the boundaries of traditional science and went right to the heart, for many, of the truth claims made in the Bible about the creation of humanity. But it was also embedded, as I mentioned, in a whole host of other scientific challenges to religious belief. The first time the topic is addressed in dialogue is in the autumn-winter 1973 issue that has a whole dedicated collection on science and religion. It's worth mentioning that Joseph Fielding Smith was president of the church at the time these essays were written, which is important because of his strong teachings opposing evolution. There are a couple of short essays in this issue. Robert Rees's Science, Religion, and Man, which he wrote expressing the compatibilist view, quote, what we need is a new alliance between science and religion based on mutual trust and a recognition by each of the uniqueness of the other's contributions to man's life. When either science or religion acts as if it has exclusive rights in the domain of truth, it is a guarantee that the truth will not be served. There's also Richard Hagland, Science and Religion, a Symbiosis. This essay expresses the views of compatibility as well, Hagland is, by the way, the father of Christine Hagland, one of the editors of Dialogue for much of the 2000s. 
There's also a great interview in this issue with Henry Eyring, the most accomplished LDS scientist from the first half of the 20th century. He was interviewed by Ed Kimball, Spencer W. Kimball's son. Ed also became a really important historian. Next in this issue is Clyde Parker, Dialogues on Science and Religion. These are interviews with different anonymous LDS scientists asking how they reconciled their beliefs. One of these is a conversation with a biological scientist that gets into evolution. However, for our purposes, the most important article in this 1973 issue is Sears, Savants, and Evolution, The Uncomfortable Interface by Dwayne E. Jeffrey. Jeffrey is one of the most important scholars on this topic in the late 20th century. He was a professor of integrative biology at BYU for many decades and has many important publications. This was a really important essay that was republished a number of times. Some consider it to be one of the most important articles published in dialogue, comparing it to Lester Bush's foundational article on race. It was not only the most sophisticated treatment of the topic by any Latter-day Saint up until that time, but in some ways, the only sophisticated treatment. Jeffrey picks right up from Darwin and indicates that Mormons really haven't dealt with this issue seriously. He notes that church leaders have opposed evolution, but also that Latter-day Saints have lots of tools for dealing with the issue. We don't believe in biblical infallibility or literalism generally. We don't believe in ex nihilo creation and more. So he looks at the age of the earth in LDS teachings, the fixity of species, the source of life, the special creation of humanity, and so on, and finds a lot more variety in early LDS thought than the fundamentalist perspectives. The Pratts and Brigham Young, for instance, had huge disagreements on related matters. Jeffrey also responds to the 1909 statement and other authoritative statements from church leaders after that. He specifically leaned on those that emphasized that there was no official church teaching on evolution, suggesting that those not only superseded the 1909 statement, but that all subsequent statements that suggested that the church opposed evolution were wrong. So the article is really good for laying out the history of LDS teachings on the matter, including extensive quotes from primary sources up through the conflicts between David O. McKay and Joseph Fielding Smith on the book, Man, His Origin and Destiny. Ultimately, Jeffrey puts forward his own view that God works through evolutionary processes. Quote, Mormonism is committed to the concept of a lawful, loving, orderly deity to whom capriciousness and deceit are anathema. The concept that God works through universal law, that he is God because his obedience to and operation within the framework of such law is fundamental. This gives Mormonism a basis for synthesis that exists in few, if any, other Western religions. It cannot be ignored with impunity. The 1973 issue was a sensation. A letter to the editor said, Thanks for another superb issue of dialogue. The issue on science and religion was most timely. One would wish that every teacher from the Mormon ranks would read it and come to mental grips with the problem of what constitutes the basics of our religion and what should be left to scientific study. Yes, I have a knot in my stomach. I have seen too many minds closed by well-meaning teachers who thought they were saviors of the cause. You see, I am a geology teacher and too often have the opportunity to observe these minds set in action. 
The following year, in 1974, Dialogue published Sears, Savants, and Evolution, a continuing dialogue. This was a collection of brief responses to Jeffrey's article, kind of like letters to the editor. It also included a response from Jeffrey. Stephen and Kathleen Snow begin, Dwayne Jeffrey is to be thanked for his article, Sears, Savants, and Evolution, The Uncomfortable Interface. It is an excellent summary of the history of thought on evolution of the church. To illustrate its power, it made us very carefully reconsider our own anti-evolution bias and again perceive evolution as a possibility. The Snows then went for a very big however and argued against evolution and reconciliation. At the same time, these authors were open to those who accepted evolution in good faith as not apostates, so I guess that was something. Don Woodward chastised Jeffrey for, quote, not going far enough and coming across as, quote, an apologist for the church. Norman Etaw was tough on the other end. Quote, Jeffrey's willingness to compromise church history to reach a conclusion that the church has not taken a stand against his pet scientific dogma has an all too familiar tone. Readers of dialogue were entitled to more than a selected rehash of quotes on creation and evolution to reach the dubious conclusion that no stand has been taken. He gives several examples, including, quote, the views of Joseph Fielding Smith should be enough to convince anyone that a president of the church has articulated a position against evolution. This response was and remains typical of many who oppose evolution, who want to emphasize all of the times church leaders have condemned it, rather than the time that church leaders have professed neutrality. It reveals a long-standing weakness in church governance, where extreme conservative positions are professed alongside statements of neutrality from more moderate voices, but the conservative stridency often wins the day. Dwayne Jeffrey's long response demolishes Etah's analysis with more minor attention to the snows if you're interested in reading a good tussle. There were bigger tussles going on too. Dwayne Jeffrey's article made its way to Ezra Taft Benson, an arch-conservative apostle. Benson was flabbergasted by the article, according to reports, especially since it was written by someone teaching at BYU. The following year, he denounced evolution and BYU professors who taught it at a BYU fireside. Several people tried to get Jeffrey fired over this article, but BYU president Dallin H. Oaks saved him with the help of Gordon B. Hinckley. Apparently, the efforts to get Jeffrey fired continued for many years afterward. The problem of a recent church president, Joseph Fielding Smith, speaking out so forcefully against evolution really did put those who accepted evolution on the defensive. Smith certainly didn't believe that the church was or should be neutral on the matter. But in 1979, there's a great little article shedding light on the authority of Smith's infamous book. We saw that many considered this to be the definitive treatment of the subject by church leaders. But Professor William Lee Stokes, head of the Department of Geology at the University of Utah, submitted an important piece of evidence into this conversation with his brief piece, An Official Position, published in 1979. This is a brief article, more of a note really, but it includes a reproduction of a personal letter that Stokes received from President David O. McKay on February 15, 1957. Dear Brother Stokes, 
Your letter of February 11, 1957 has been received. On the subject of organic evolution, the Church has officially taken no position. The book, Man, His Origin and Destiny, was not published by the Church and is not approved by the Church. The book contains expressions of the author's views for which he alone is responsible. Sincerely, your brother, David O. McKay. Stokes understood that given his position at the University of Utah, teaching many LDS students, and the stated reasons for his inquiry, he should share the letter with anyone who might be confused, but he kept it private without explicit permission for many years. In 1968, he inquired about sharing the letter and was granted permission by David O. McKay's secretary. The idea that the church had no official position on the topic of evolution has been repeated many times since. But the unofficial position that the church opposes evolution continued to be popular. Welcome to Bristlecombe Firesides, casual conversation around a virtual fireside where we discuss faith, the earth, the universe, and everything. We are your hosts, Abby and Madison. The central question we ask each other, as well as poets, artists, activists, and other guests around our virtual fireside, is what does it mean to belong to the earth? So if you've ever wondered how to reground your faith in spiritual practice in the stuff of the earth, this is the podcast for you. Catch up on previous seasons by subscribing to Bristlecombe Firesides on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. From the Aspen Mountains, Juniper Forests, Red Rock Deserts, and Salty Lakes of Utah, we wish you peace and goodness as you strive to find yourself in the family of the earth. Act 3 normalizing evolution. The issue remained a slow burn controversy. In 1984, Cedric Davern was a geneticist and professor of biology at the University of Utah, who published his article, Evolution and Creation, Two Worldviews. The origins of the article traced back to 1982, when Davern engaged in a debate with a creationist named Dwayne Gish, who was the associate director of the Institute for Creation Research at the time. It's a useful summary of key disagreements on the meanings of terms and concepts, and again, makes the case that evolution and religious belief are not mutually exclusive. In particular, he traces the idea of providential evolution, a view put forward by many Christians who sought to reconcile divine creation with organic evolution. This view held that God was the designer who set in motion or otherwise shaped the processes of evolution. a decade passed in the materials that I could find before the subject was addressed again. There was an article by David Bailey, Science and Mormonism, Past, Present, and Future, in the spring 1996 issue. This is a great article examining the question of the church's historical approach to science 
and asking whether it will be able to adjust to further developments. In the periodization offered here, Bailey argues that in the 19th century, Mormonism was in fact open to new scientific views and tried to make LDS revelations compatible with the popularized science of the day. But by 1930, a fundamentalism began to take over the faith. By 1954, Joseph Fielding Smith's anti-scientific perspectives really took off. While there were several leaders in the 50s to the 70s that were open to scientific perspectives, especially evolution, others remained vocal opponents. By the 1990s, Bailey noted that a general softening among LDS leadership and published materials had occurred. Then he turns to the future. 25 years later, it's interesting to see how his predictions played out. He anticipates discussions of climate change, as well as new DNA research emerging, as well as many other issues. He mostly asks questions about how theology and church teachings might adapt. Fortunately, he says, the church has one important advantage over many other religious denominations in dealing with the challenges of science, its belief in continuing revelation. In winter 2002, we see a whole set of articles dedicated to science and religion. There are a lot of really great articles here covering evolution as well as other topics. We're going to focus just on the evolution articles. First up is actually an interview with Dwayne Jeffrey, Thoughts on Mormonism, Evolution, and Brigham Young University. Jeffrey, you'll remember, was a professor of zoology who'd published that groundbreaking article in 1973. In the interview, he talks about how he got into science as a profession and how he was influenced by the progressive LDS tradition that was thinking about science and religion together. He talks about his experiences teaching at BYU, including how BYU religious education was the primary source of opposition to evolution in the 1970s. Quote, one of the members of the religion faculty wrote a seven-page letter to his dean to tell him he would never participate in such a satanic enterprise as meeting with the scientists on campus, and he never did show up. There are a lot of other great anecdotes, but most important is the story of what happened in 1992. It was that year that the board of trustees at BYU approved the creation of a packet of information that countered the anti-scientific biases on campus. This packet includes the earlier anti-science statements, such as the 1909 First Presidency Letter, but also those which indicate that there is no official doctrine on evolution. This packet is handed out to all students at BYU whenever evolution is taught. Anyway, there's a lot more on the problems of creationism and more juicy, gossipy stories in this article. It's really a super fun read. Next up is Michael Ash, The Mormon Myth of Evil Evolution. This was in the same 2002 issue. Ash's article reprises some of the history of controversies over evolution since 1909 and makes the case, somewhat strangely, that this is not an anti-evolution text and is consistent with the official position that there is no official position. Anyway, it goes into a lot more detail on various turning points and episodes in LDS history in the 20th century, focusing especially on controversies over pre-Adamites, a dispute over one of the ways that B.H. Roberts and James Talmadge and others proposed to solve the problem of evolution, that Adam was not the first human, but the first human to have a relationship with God. The article also gives a lot of good documentation 
about just how controversial Joseph Fielding Smith's book against evolution had been among senior church leaders, who seemed to be telling everyone who asked that it was simply his opinion. However, as we mentioned before, these church leaders did little to counter the influence of the book publicly. Ash's article then offers more details about the controversies at BYU, including when Dallin Oaks arrived there as president in 1971 and had to negotiate conflicting feelings between support for scientists on campus and the anti-evolution faction. Ash also gives a lot more detail on the moment of BYU in the 1990s and the important entry on evolution in the 1992 Encyclopedia of Mormonism. Quote, like other myths, he says, both inside and outside the church, the myth of evil evolution is perpetuated by the masses who are unfamiliar with information which refutes such falsehoods. He proposes that the popularity of dialogue, sunstone, and the growth of LDS websites would lead to greater acceptance of evolution. 20 years later, I think it remains to be seen. Next is David Bailey, Mormonism and the New Creationism. You'll remember Bailey's 1996 article on the past, present, and future of Mormonism and science. In this article in the special 2002 issue, Bailey looks more specifically at creation science, the development of views in conservative religious circles that sought to make creationism compatible with evolution and to do so with a claim to scientific rather than dogmatic arguments. He discusses surveys about LDS attitudes, including the strong prevalence of anti-evolutionary views even among BYU students. Nearly 50% of first-year students in BYU's Biology 101 class denied that evolution happened to humans. By the time these students were in senior zoology classes at BYU, 29% agreed that evolution did not happen to humans. The scientist professors surveyed accepted evolution, but huge numbers of faculty in BYU religious education decried it. That department, then still home to Joseph Fielding McConkie, the heir of the Fielding Smith McConkie legacy, was a stronghold of fundamentalism continuing at least until the early 2000s. Bailey's article traces out this history even more, showing how Joseph Fielding Smith relied on the work of creationists in developing his own ideas, proving that anti-evolution teachings were borrowed from other Christians. He looks at other creationists, creation science, and young earth creationist books published, providing a good survey of the culture of these writings and how they influenced LDS writers. He also summarizes some of their key arguments and provides a scientific assessment of their validity. In this 2002 issue is The Human Genome Project, Modern Biology and Mormonism, A Viable Marriage?, by Devin M. Smith. Smith's article walks through DNA studies and the mapping of human DNA that was completed with the Human Genome Project. It was still ongoing as of the writing of this article. He discusses its importance primarily in terms of pharmacology, ethics, and more. Yet he notes that almost nothing had been said about this massive scientific advance by church leaders. Quote, The ethical issues arising from the Human Genome Project are no longer potential scenarios, but very real situations that will occur and are now occurring. It is critical that the leaders of the church become aware of these issues before they become acute so that appropriate responses are considered. There are questions about agency, bodily identity, abortion, and more that are all given new data with this project. 
I want to mention a brief personal essay in this 2002 issue by Danette Reynolds, Coming Out of the Evolution Closet. It's a humorous story about her conflicts with members of her Ogden, Utah ward and an experience that probably many members of the church have had with seminary teachers or Sunday school teachers who make some negative remark about how people who accept evolution are stupid or evil. Reynolds offers both humor and good perspective about how to take these comments. Finally, in the spring 2003 issue, David Tolman wrote, Search for an epistemology, three views of science and religion. This was literally the issue immediately after the winter 2002 issue on science. So I don't know if they ran out of room or he didn't make the deadline or what, but I think that it should be included in the same time period and really dealing with many of the same kinds of issues. So these few decades saw a couple of important developments. First, we saw greater historical research on the church's anti-evolutionary views. Second, there was a decline in anti-evolutionary voices in the senior leadership of the church during this period. BYU issued a packet on evolution in 1992, and the Encyclopedia of Mormonism, published in 1992, also gave a relatively favorable account of evolution. Senior church leaders hardly spoke about the topic publicly after that. Yet the old teachings remained dominant even as they stood alongside denials of any official position, and the intellectual class in the church continued to try to make room for religious belief and evolution. Recent Treatments. This final act begins in 2006, just a few years after the last one ended. Not necessarily because there was any major shift in approach. In fact, we've seen a lot of consistency in this century-long struggle, but because I had to end it somewhere. And in the last 15 years, it seems Dialogue has only published a couple of articles that I could find on evolution. In a way, that's not so bad. The issues haven't really evolved that much, pun intended, except these last two articles really do raise some new theological questions. In 2006, Kent C. Condy publishes Premortal Spirits, Implications for Cloning, Abortion, Evolution, and Extinction. This is a really interesting article that comes at the issue of evolution not from the perspective of creationism or biblical authority, but rather from the distinctive LDS teachings about premortality. What is the relationship between the premortal spirit and the genetically produced body? How does free agency match up to genetic constraints? Don't genes imply the heresy of predestination or determinism? Condi proposes some solutions to these problems, by suggesting that specific spirits aren't necessarily predestined to inhabit specific bodies. This addresses the issue of cloning and abortion as well, not to mention evolution. So, Condi supports the idea of a created spirit rather than an internal one, and a more generic spirit that doesn't necessarily have to be predestined to anticipate every single genetic development over thousands and thousands of generations. The final article is Spring 2010 by famed scholar and author Stephen Peck. 
crawling out of the primordial soup, a step toward the emergence of an LDS theology compatible with organic evolution. Peck is an evolutionary biologist at BYU. This article asks an even more profound question about evolution. He goes specifically to the heart of the question, not about the compatibility of a divinely guided evolution, but about the ethics of such a view. Isn't the God of such a theology pretty brutal in his direction of nature to produce the current results? What other theological ideas does evolution challenge besides creationism? This essay looks at a number of what he calls, quote, sticking points in compatibilism. So this essay is really theological, exploring the problems that evolution raises from several different theological perspectives. Peck puts forward what he calls Mormon evolutionary theology here. This draws on the historical attempt to reconcile evolution and LDS thought, going back to the 1911 BYU professors, John Widso, B.H. Roberts, James E. Talmadge, and others. But Peck also discusses those ethical issues, natural evils, he calls them, that seem to be implied by the idea of an intelligent designer. How we got to where we are was not a very clean path. Instead, Peck draws on ideas in contemporary LDS theology that limit God's role in the human drama, including limiting his power as designer. This arises as a solution to the problem of evil as well. Quote, to me, evolution is an empowering idea. Linking it to our theology provides answers to several perplexing questions. It suggests that there is something wonderfully important about embodiment and why physical access to the universe is so important. Our doctrines, informed by evolution, answer questions about why such a cruel and wasteful process was chosen for creation and resituate the problem of evil. I find easy adaptations to our most important and profound doctrines. I see no reason why Mormons cannot, fully and without apology, embrace Darwinian evolution. provides a framework for a full, if long, long delayed, theological assessment of Mormonism in light of Darwinian evolution. We aren't just hand-wringing about it anymore or writing the history of how we got ourselves into a creationist quagmire, but truly seeing scholars engage wholeheartedly with evolution, including giving up intelligent design. Since 2010, I couldn't find another article on evolution in dialogue. Perhaps that's a good sign, in a way, that the force of the issue has died down. It seems less urgent now. Still, that transformation is interesting and holds a lesson, I think. Sometimes these tough issues take decades, if not generations, to work themselves out, or at least to work themselves into a stalemate. BYU professors aren't getting fired anymore or facing serious opposition. 
Dialogue isn't getting letters to the editor decrying evolutionary ideas. If Dwayne Jeffrey represented the beginning of our journey with evolution in dialogue and Stephen Peck our ending point, we also see that the nature of the questions have changed as well, as well as the theological sophistication of the answers. Still, though I'm pleased that this once contentious issue is a little less so, I can't help but hope to see more. We certainly don't have all the answers yet, but the questions sure are compelling. want to subscribe or donate to Dialogue, you can do so at dialoguejournal.com slash subscribe. This episode was written by me with editing and music by Daniel Foster Smith. Our content manager is Emily Jensen. Our social media manager is Adam McLean. The Dialogue Journal podcast is produced by the Dialogue Foundation, a registered 501c3 with support from Mary Thieves. This show is part of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collection of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, and arts and culture. And we've been growing like wildfire with tons of new shows, like Fireside with Blair Hodges, At Last She Said It, Bristlecone Firesides, Strangers No More, Funeral Potatoes at the Singles Ward, and more. Check out all of the shows at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network.